The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, it's 2022. We are winding down the year, but we haven't yet celebrated one of the great literary birthdays. T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, that modernist masterpiece, turned 100 this year. Our guest today, Jed Rasula, author of the book What the Thunder Said, How the Wasteland Made Poetry Modern, will help us celebrate. That's coming up today on The History of Literature. No. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm glad you're here to join us today. 1922, that incredible literary year. Peak modernism, you might say. In the novel form, Ulysses came out, that towering landmark. And in poetry, The Wasteland. Both of them were thunderous. Today, well, you, you probably remember my holiday season as a time to rejoice, so to speak. I don't like puns, but I'll make exceptions when it comes to the Wizard of Dublin. Or maybe that should be the Wizard of Dublin, resident of Zurich and Paris and Trieste. I read the Dubliners every year around this time. Mike Palindrome has been joining me on this in the past few years. One story a day, like an advent calendar, kind of a private little holiday ceremony for me. I don't tweet about it or anything. Just keep it to myself. And you can do it too if you'd like. One story a day, a little Irish meditation. It's okay to skip some days and catch up, or just to cut to the chase altogether. The main goal here is to land on reading the dead on Christmas Eve. That's what I look forward to the most. It's like the culmination of a symphony, except it makes me warm and it makes me weep. Warmed, I weep. Freshly warm, I weep freely. Maybe check out the movie, too. John Huston's last film. And Angelica Huston, his daughter, is in it. And it is a beautiful little masterpiece, too. A creamy bauble. A gleaming gem. But that's James Joyce. Today, we turn to T.S. Eliot. But we don't really have to leave Joyce behind. The two are inextricable if we accept that they accepted one another as kindred literary spirits, both aware of the zeitgeist and meeting it with two very similar approaches. They influenced one another. Eliot had read Ulysses and referred to it often as he was writing The Wasteland. He continued to be a great champion of Joyce's works all the way through Finnegan's Wake, the book that was a bridge too far for many of Joyce's readers. Virginia Woolf noted that she had never seen Eliot as excited as he was when he was discussing Ulysses. In her words, quote, I remember Tom saying, how could anyone write again after achieving the immense prodigy of the last chapter? He was, for the first time in my knowledge, rapt, enthusiastic, end quote. Joyce, according to a friend named Helen Nutting, read The Wasteland and said, I had never realized that Eliot was a poet. Helen Nutting replied, I liked it too, but I couldn't understand it. Joyce then said, Do you have to understand it? Do you have to understand it? Let's unpack that a bit. What good is a poem if we don't understand it? Well, it might have musicality to it. The sounds and rhythms might be pleasing or edifying, even if the words make no sense to us. But I think that Joyce here is talking about something a little beyond that. The idea that a poem might take us in directions that feel right, that act upon us, even if we can't easily summarize what the poem is about. Even if there are references we don't fully follow. You can read The Wasteland 
and take from it what you can. Or you can read it carefully, line by line, reading an annotated version, or maybe tracing back references for yourself. Or you can start with a book like the one our author has written, which our guest today has written, which helps put the wasteland in some historical context before you begin, or side by side as you read the wasteland. But before we get there, let's let Joyce explain what he meant by that phrase. In a different conversation in Paris this time, Joyce spoke with his friend Arthur Power, who didn't like Eliot's work. Joyce then quoted to him the Shakespearean rag section of the wasteland, which I will read for you in a moment. Let me say, first of all, sometimes people mess this up. They think, oh, there's a typo. It's Shakespearean rag, which actually was a song. Came out in 1912. Eliot twists this a bit, and his spelling is intentional. He says Shakespearean rag. It's the syncopation of ragtime music. And if you're like me, you grew up with this syncopated rhythm in your head. Not actually from listening to a lot of ragtime music, which was already old when I was young. Although I was familiar with Scott Joplin and and The Entertainer and The Maple Leaf Rag. And all that had kind of a 1970s renaissance thanks to the movie The Sting. But I knew the rhythm from another source. (laughs) (laughs) from the Warner Brothers cartoon with Michigan J. Frog, a singing frog who refused to sing whenever his owner tried to show him off to others. But when they were alone, there was this. Everybody do the Michigan rag. Everybody likes the Michigan rag. Every Mame and Jane and Ruth, from Weehawken to Duluth, slide right, glide the Michigan stomp, rump, pump the Michigan jump, pump, pump the Michigan ride. That love in Okay, there we go. So for me, it was easy. By a bit of luck, I happened to time travel via... Michigan J. Frog to a song that was, that song actually, Michigan Rag, it turns out it was written specifically for the cartoon in the 1950s, but it was written in a way that captured what rags sounded like. So for Elliot's listeners, this would have been a much more direct reference. They would have been much more familiar with the rag. What's he doing in this line? Oh, 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 that Shakespearean rag. Well, oh, 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 oh is also a reference to Hamlet. But oh, 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 that Shakespearean rag. He's bringing in some rhythms, some pop culture. There was a song called The Shakespearean Rag that, you know, I haven't been able to hear a 1912 recording. I've heard some modern day versions of it. I've seen the sheet music, but that was a spoof of rags. But when you think about Michigan J. Frog and that voice, You know he wouldn't be singing, oh, 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 that Shakespearean rag. They'd be singing it as, oh, 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 that Shakespearean rag, right? But you know what? You don't need to know that song or or have heard it to find something worthwhile in Eliot's line. I had a bit of connection. I could hear the voice as (laughs) Michigan J. Frog. But I didn't need to have that connection. Obviously, that wouldn't have been Eliot's intention for me to have that particular connection. If you have it, great. If you've heard the Shakespearean rag, or as Eliot puts it, the Shakespearean rag, great. If you don't, it's okay, too. You can just, you can learn about it. You can look it up and say, what's what's this talking about? Oh, 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 that Shakespearean rag. You can find it. Or... You can just appreciate the lines for what they are. You can probably figure it out. You probably have some idea of what a rag is. Right? Maybe you'll get this one or the next one or someone will explain something to you and it will open new doors for you to enter. But you don't need a connection, an aha moment, other than to know this is how a modern city works. Snatches of mute. We're not on the, we're not in the pasture anymore, gazing at sheep. 
We're walking through modern cities with snatches of music coming out of the doorways, perhaps. And I might hear them on the gramophones, the speakers. Today, cars and trucks pass by. You hear little snatches of music. You walk into the shopping mall. You hear it there. Grocery store, all music. Little snatches of music coming out of, of all those sources. That's what we have in this poem. And we have a mind that's reading Shakespeare at night and walking through the city by day and mashing it all together. Sights, sounds, smells, thoughts, high art and low art, love and myth and philosophy all go into the mental blender. So here's the passage from The Wasteland. These are Eliot's lines. Oh, 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 that Shakespearean rag. It's so elegant, so intelligent. What shall I do now? What shall I do? I shall rush out as I am and walk the street with my hair down. So, what shall we do tomorrow? What shall we ever do? The hot water at ten. And if it rains, a closed car at four. And we shall play a game of chess, pressing lidless eyes and waiting for a knock upon the door. Joyce's friend, Arthur Power, listened to Joyce reciting those verses to him and said, Huh, meh, that's not poetry, or at least not the poetry I like, James Joyce. Here's good poetry, Robert Browning. I present to you Robert Browning, and he quoted some lines from a poem called Sordello, which Browning had started writing in the 1830s, nearly a hundred years before. Sordello was a character who appeared in Dante's Purgatorio. He was a 13th century troubadour. Browning had taken a few of Dante's stanzas and used them as his springboard, and he made a long poem out of it. Famously long, famously difficult. Here's a sample of Sordello, which I have selected. I imagine the lines that Joyce heard that day were something like these. The woods were long austere with snow. At last, pink leaflets budded on the beach, and fast larches, scattered through pine tree solitudes, brightened. As in the slumberous heart o' oh, the woods, our buried year, a witch, grew young again to placid incantations, and that stain about were from her cauldron. Green smoke blent with those black pines. So Eglamour gave vent to a chance fancy whence a just rebuke from his companion, Brother Nado, shook the solemnest of brows. Beware, he said, of setting up conceits in nature's stead. Forth wandered our Sordello, not so sure as that today's adventure will secure Palma, the visioned lady. Only pass o'er you damp mound and its exhausted grass, under that break where sundawn feeds the stalks of withered fern with gold into those walks of pine, and take her. Buoyantly he went. Again his stooping forehead was besprent with dewdrops from the skirting ferns. That, said Arthur Power, Joyce's friend, is poetry. He was not alone at the time. In admiring that poem, ironically, Sordello was criticized in its own time as being dense, thick, impenetrable, too layered with history and illusions. Tennyson, the great poet, tackled it later, and a friend recorded the reaction. Here's the quote. quote Lord Tennyson manfully tackled it, but he is reported to have admitted in bitterness of spirit, there were only two lines in it that I understood, and they were both lies. They were the opening and closing lines. Who will may hear Sordello's story told, and who would has heard Sordello's story told. <laughs> Those lines, said Tennyson, were lies. But later the poem was rediscovered by Swinburne and then by the moderns, including Ezra Pound, who was a fan. Suddenly history and illusions were in vogue as we see in Ulysses and the Wasteland. They were popular, and they looked back to Browning and said, look at this. Here it is. That's what Pound said. Joyce did not follow him in that admiration for Sordello. 
I wonder why. There's no pop culture in it, no ditties, no snatches of advertising slogans or movie posters or vaudeville jokes or popular music. It's formal, august, austere, grand, worthy. And Joyce said, quote, Haven't we had enough of all that? It was written in a tradition that is already dead. Did you ever hear anyone talk like Browning's characters? The Wasteland is the expression of our time in which we are trying to lift off the accumulated weight of the ages which was stifling original thought. Formulas, which may have meant something in the past, but which mean nothing today. Eliot searches for images of emotion rather than for an ordered sequence, and in this he is related to all the other modern poets. End quote. Joyce knew much of the wasteland by heart. He parodied, parodied it. For Joyce, that's high praise to be referring to something and give it a little satirization. Shows he knows, shows he cares. It was Joyce's way. He did that in letters to friends with the wasteland. It was meaningful to him. Meaningful as a project, as an approach, as an accomplishment, as confirmation of what he himself was doing. So, just what was T.S. Eliot doing with the wasteland? Let's talk to our guest, the expert Jed Rasula, to help fill us in. Everybody likes the Michigan rhyme. Every Mame and Jane and Ruth from Weehawken to Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Jed Rasula, distinguished professor at the University of Georgia. Before that, Professor Rasula worked in radio and television and as the editor of a poetry magazine. He's written numerous books of poetry, criticism, and literary history. He's here today to discuss his newest work, What the Thunder Said, How the Wasteland Made Poetry Modern, published by the Princeton University Press. Jed Rasula, welcome to the History of Literature. Glad to be here. So I'm fascinated by this idea of a before and after in literature, these moments where everything changed. And I guess the first question I want to ask is, what was the before? What was the, the general state of poetry and where it was headed prior to the wasteland? Well, it kind of depends on where you were living, whether you were living in Chicago or New York or Paris or London or somewhere else. And in part, this is a story of people in different, coming from different locations, having to confront the advent of, of the modern, of modernity mm -hmm. all at once. Mm -hmm. And so one reason why Ezra Pound is a significant part of the, of the story is not only because he's the one who encountered Eliot when they met in London in 1915, but also because he was the one who recognized that Eliot, as Pound put it to his own astonishment, was someone who had modernized himself on his own. Yeah. And Pound was writing really with an, an acute sense of self-dismay, I think, by the time he met 
Elliot because Pound had moved to London in 1909 and he immediately set himself up to become the enfant terrible of American ingenues in the big metropolis. And he wanted to make a name for himself as a poet and to become a kind of mover and shaker in that field. But he was deeply immersed in archaic diction, in outmoded approaches to poetry. Hmm. His first three books were filled with uh, formulations in which he dropped hard consonants. So you don't write never and over, you write ne'er and o'er, or inversions like love makes me the poet play, old uh, medieval expressions like nay and yea, durst, wast, proveth and moveth. It was just a, a sea of garbage, really, antiquated garbage <laughs> was floating in. And he recognized very belatedly, as late as about 1912, that a lot of instructive advances had been made across the channel in France. And not only recently, but going back into the latter decades of the 19th century. And that's where the, the expression free verse comes into the Scene. Free verse is uh, specifically a French expression, meaning to break up the prevalence of the Alexandrine as the 12-syllable line in French poetry. But uh, what Pounds said about it was that what free verse enabled himself and his cohorts to think about as a way of overcoming the prevailing verse modes in, in English at, at that time were that they really had to recover a living language. And he characterized verse in about 1910 as not even baked, in other words, not even half-baked, not even baked, a doughy mess of third-hand Keats, blunted, half-melted, and lumpy. Uh. So that's, that's pretty scathing, and it's a retrospective account from Pound. But that's something that a great many people were beginning to feel at the time, and it was just challenging in the, the environment of poetry publications uh, before the First World War, for anybody to find other people who had similar recognitions or similar inklings. And that's why the French provocations were so crucial to T.S. Eliot, who, when he was an undergraduate at Harvard, started reading poets like Jules Lafleur, the French symbolist, who completely changed his manner and his approach. And that's why when Pound encountered him in 1915, Hound was just mesmerized at the fact that Eliot was the only English poet that he had encountered who had actually assimilated the lessons of late 19th century French verse from Baudelaire to Mallarmé and Jules Lefort and all sorts of other people. Mm. So why did Pound think things needed to change? Was he looking at poetry just as, well, all art forms must progress? Or was he looking at the environment and the current events and saying, this poetry that we're writing doesn't reflect changes in technology or the fast-paced urbane society? Or was he looking at other arts like painting and saying, well, those are all moving in this direction. I can see modernism coming, but Poetry just isn't there. What was behind Pound's drive or his desire to find this kind of new language that Eliot was also coming up with? In part, it had to do with Pound started to recognize that his own verse was completely antiquated and out of date. Mm. And, and he, knew, he knew he needed to change. So that was just a matter of personal aspirations. But it also helped that he was in London at a time when he was in increasingly kind of in the in the swim of an inter-arts or pan-arts movement on various fronts. And one of the most famous and often quoted statements that Pound made about poetry around 1912, 1913, is that poetry should be at least as well-written as prose. Mm. You know, part of this recognition comes from the fact that when he moved to London, the two people that he was most keen to meet and to encounter were the Irish poet William Butler Yeats and the expatriate American novelist Henry James. And so he had a kind of dual focus at that point so that he was looking at what he thought of as advances in both poetry and prose. But then he started encountering people like uh, Jacob Epstein and Wyndham Lewis, who were artists. Hmm. And once he encountered their work, he really quickly realized that the poetry that he was trying to depose was so far behind 
the artwork that previous generations had deposed in the middle of the 19th century, if not earlier. And so he, he saw that there was a huge catch-up game that was involved. And so then that kind of freed his vision, I think, to look around at all the other arts and see, well, something is changing and it's not just in one art. It's happening everywhere. And, mm-hmm. and this is also a time when cinema was starting to catch the attention of people, especially people in the avant-garde, as a challenge or provocation to whatever art they happen to practice. Yeah. So I get the feeling that if a person who knew nothing of poetry attended a dinner party with Pound and Elliot and Wyndham Lewis, and and afterwards you told that person, you know, one of those three people you just met tonight is going to shock the world with a poem that, that sets a new standard for poetry, that person probably would have been surprised to, to learn that it was Elliot of the three who had done it. Was it just the exposure and the absorption of the French poets of the 19th century that did it, or was there something about Elliot and his personality or his interests in particular that made him equipped for writing The Wasteland. How did he pull it off? Well, uh, that's where the story becomes pathological. Mm. Uh, it, it really is a story of Elliot plunged into an ongoing marital trauma yeah. and sexual distress combined with the very particular kind of education that he had had at Harvard and then in Paris at the Sorbonne, and the the intellectual outlook that he had and the kind of academic training that he had. And so Eliot was pulled into a kind of an avant-garde rumble wagon by pound, and it was not something that I would say he expected or was looking for, although to the end of his life, he never stopped crediting pound for basically saving his life. Mm. Looking back from just a few years before he died, he reflected on the fact that it was pound who, by affirming the fact that he was a viable poet, enabled Eliot to take the step of abandoning the academic career that he had been embarked on for a number of years and decide to enter into the literary scene in London and make his way as a poet and as a critic. And so it was not so much that he ever at any point envisioned poetry along the lines of the wasteland and and how that that turned out that's a, a somewhat longer story but he certainly was given the incentive by pound to continue writing in the vein that he had been writing in and the most famous poem that Eliot wrote besides the wasteland was the love song of J. Alfred Krufrock, which became the, the title of his first poetry publication uh, yeah. as a book or booklet in 1917, Krufrock and Other Observations. But that's a poem that was originally drafted when he was an undergraduate at Harvard. Mm. And then it was finally finished up when he was studying in Munich, just as the war broke out. And that's what brought him to Oxford. Mm. So he was... You know, he made his way to the wasteland by a series of accidents. And one of the reasons, I think, why the wasteland took on the extraordinarily innovative form that it did is that his life was such a mess that he really could not, for a number of years, accomplish much in the way of writing new poetry. And and he had ambitions to write a, a long poem to make a big impact, and it just wasn't coming to anything. And he finally had a nervous breakdown and was sent to Lausanne in Switzerland to work with a doctor there named Dr. Vitos. And it was there that he finalized the, the draft of the wasteland that he dropped off to Pound, who was then living in Paris in uh, January of 1922. Mm. And even at that point, it was not necessarily a coherent poem. So it was Pound who ended up becoming the dedicatee of the poem because Pound helped Eliot come up with the final shape and form of the wasteland. So like I say, the wasteland was not ever part of Eliot's aspiration or design. It was just the end result of a desire to produce a longer poem that would be the next step in his development. Mm, Okay, let's take a quick break, and then we'll talk about the wasteland and what exactly is in it that made it such a landmark in the world of poetry. Certainly. Everybody do the Michigan rag. Everybody likes the Michigan rag. Every name and change. Be hopping to Duluth. Slide, ride, glide the Michigan stump. Rump, pump the Michigan chump. Pump, pump the Michigan rag. That love. 
Okay, we are back. So what exactly was new about the wasteland? As you mentioned, he had this, he was showing these signs and Pound had recognized him as someone who was coming to exemplify modernism even years before the wasteland was published. So how exactly does the wasteland explore or express the central concerns of modernism? Well, I think the most profound aspect of the wasteland that has an undisputable source and resource in modernism across the arts is the use of collage. Mm, mm-hmm. Collage is something that was in the air at the time, but had not a particularly strong or vivid prehistory. Collage, in a technical sense, is something that Pablo Picasso and Georges Braque started doing in the second phase of cubism, which is referred to as analytical cubism, when they started pasting bits of material from newspapers and other sourced material from the environment into their artworks. And it only really developed in a particularly aggressive way in Berlin in the later years of the war and after the war with the Dada movement, which had started in Berlin in 1916. And so up to the time of the publication of The Wasteland, it's fair to say that collage was a phenomenon strictly associated with the visual arts. There are a few examples of collage-like tendencies in poetry before that, but not very much. And all of them are French, associated with Guillaume Apollinaire or Blaisandrard. And although they were poets who were known to both Pound and Eliot by that point, they weren't doing it with the same kind of innovation or dedication as, as, say, the Cubists. And the collage aspect of the wasteland is really, going back to what I was saying earlier about Eliot, a kind of a, an unintended byproduct of the compositional process. Mm. That is, Eliot had assembled a whole heap of different kinds of poetic writing, all hopefully aiming towards this big poem he expected to write, but he couldn't really figure out how to pull them all together because they didn't have the same styles They didn't have the same themes. They were just, it was a jumble of loose manuscripts. And it was really through the impact of Pound that Eliot made him cut down materials quite drastically so that what survived in many cases were more like snippets than extended passages of things. And once those things survived the cutting and editing process, then they started to resemble collage. But what they resembled more even than collage were a method that Pound himself had developed in the early cantos that had been published in a couple literary journals and as a kind of an appendix to a 1917 collection that he published called Lustra. Mm -hmm. And what Pound had pioneered was a sense of something very specific to Pound. He was trying to come up with ways to track historical resonances across time. In other words, moments of uh, epiphany that would span generations from Renaissance Florence to the 18th century to the 20th century. And so Pound was deliberately coming up with a method for his own cantos. And I think in a somewhat casual way, maybe an opportunistic way, he nudged Eliot in that direction with the Wasteland. And the result was that the Wasteland ended up being a much more successful demonstration of the possibilities of collage for English poetry than anything in the cantos would turn out to be. And because it's Eliot's particular mind and his background and his interests, you get uh, highbrow and lowbrow running up against one another. You get song lyrics, you get phrases of the day and advertising slogans and so on that can live right next to passages from Buddhism or other works that Eliot had read and studied. Exactly. And, you know, another way of putting that is to say that Eliot was uh, a big city dweller. You know, he lived in the in the big city. He lived in London when it was really kind of the capital of the world, both culturally and economically and in terms of its status at that time as the center uh, of the British Empire, which was soon to fall apart. But that as any 20th century uh, inhabitant of a big city realizes, experience is like cut up into shreds, mm. an ongoing sensory everyday basis. And so you go out into the street, you're paying attention to, well, to put it in a present context, you go out into the street, you're paying attention to your phone at the same time you're paying attention to the cab you might need to catch or the subway you might need to get to. And of course, you have to avoid running into people and you have to look when you're walking across the street and so forth. 
there's just a flurry of information and provocations coming at you. And in order to get through the day, you basically have to become the master collagist of your own environment. You have to retain the pieces that are there because you don't know how or when they are going to come into play or how they're going to impact you. But you have to figure out, well, there's a medium that gradually revealed itself to people as not so much an artistic strategy, but a strategy to just get along in the modern world. And mm. uh, that's why Elliot never had to even think in terms of collage. I've never come across a reference to collage in Elliot's writings. I, I keep thinking there must be one somewhere. So that was not really on his radar, but he instinctively assimilated the experience and started behaving that way in, not in all of his poetry, but in the wasteland. Yeah. And that is something that he maybe did inherit from the 19th century French poets. I, I know they were, Baudelaire, for example, is is saying, this is about a city. I'm a, a creature of the city. This takes place in a city. And, and the idea that you'd go from walking past a, a courthouse where lawyers are talking in one language, and then you go to the brothel and people are talking in a quite different lexicon and, and so forth. Exactly. And, you know, your reference to Baudelaire is really instructive because Baudelaire is credited by many people, although Baudelaire himself knew better, but is credited with being the the founder or inventor of what's called prose poems. Mm. And he had this vision that, uh, and he writes about it in the preface to a collection of his prose poems called uh, Paris Spleen. He had the vision that living in the big city demanded a different kind of poetry. And it was a poetry that would finally come to fruition by being prose. Mm. And the best assimilation of all of the incentives that come out of Baudelaire's work and then French symbolism more generally and landed on the doorstep of the 20th century were enumerated by Max Jacob, who was one of Picasso's best friends and is the main 20th century French poet associated with the uh, with the prose. He wrote a book of prose poems called The Dice Cup that was published in uh, 1917. And he characterized the ingredients of modern art in general in the following terms. He said it has complex forms and there's a dominance of interior ways of holding things together that can often prevail over meaning or intended communication. And then he emphasized speed in the the rapidity of the transit from one kind of idea or image and words to another. Mm. And he emphasized the love of words and surprises. And then another thing that I think is really important for the wasteland is what Max Jacob called invisible rhythm. And, and this is something that I think really feeds into a concept that Eliot really kept developing in his critical writings for decades after The Wasteland. And it's what he called the music of poetry. Mm-hmm. The music of poetry for him is something that he said it, it realizes itself first as a particular rhythm before it reaches expression in words. In other words, it's something like a, a subliminal rhythm, even before there's any notion of sound or semantic values associated with it. And he's also said that there is a music of imagery as well as of sound. And I think that's what really prevails in the wasteland. Mm. When you have expressions, images like bats with baby faces hanging upside down or a rat dragging itself softly along the riverbank, these kind of images create the sense of expectancy that we often feel in the presence of musical phrases. That is, you hear a piece of music and you have a sense that it's about to move towards the resolution of the dominant. It's about to achieve the tonic in a way. Hmm. And, and he started practicing something like that in the wasteland, where you have images that are thrown out that create not only a sense of an environment, but a sense of expectation, like that's almost like reading a suspense novel, like what can come next after this? Yeah. And once you have collage coming into play, then what comes next might be something that doesn't take you in a kind of a baby step, but takes you right across a gulf that's as broad as the Grand Canyon. Mm. Wow. That is fascinating. I wonder... What was his view of the reader? I, I feel like sometimes with Ulysses or The Wasteland, 
it seems like we're in the private mind of the poet. Certainly the cantos can feel this way too, where we're maybe hurrying to keep up, but maybe it's impossible because some of the references are just going to be things we don't recognize or, or haven't read. But also some of the references might be personal and private and and just recollections of things from the poets or the novelist's life or something. And and we're going to be on the outside looking in until we get the help of scholars or, or someone who tracks things down. On the other hand, collage seems to invite the reader to be a participant and to be active and to make these connections and to as you say, to hear the image and to be expecting the resolution of that image and so on. So did Eliot think of the reader at all? Was he thinking that the reader, he he needed to try to make things clear to the reader? Or was he just going to put these words down and let the reader catch up to it? Or how does that work for from Eliot's point of view? Well, I don't want to call him a snob, but let's say that he felt himself to be part of a coterie of the elite. And this yeah. is this is characteristic of a great many uh, figures in the arts in the early 20th century, because they were, in in all of their own art forms, they were experiencing a revolution without necessarily intending to be or to be perceived as revolutionaries. And so that's one of the things that happened in terms of the reception of Eliot. There's no way to not admit that The Wasteland is a revolutionary poem. And yet everything in Eliot's personal demeanor and in his behavior up to that point and for the rest of his life indicates that Eliot had no aspiration to come across that way. He did not want to be a bohemian, which seemed very 19th century. That's something that you get more in other people like his good friend Wyndham Lewis uh, or Pound for that matter. Eliot was someone who really had a stake in a much broader and holistic vision of all of the arts across all time. And that's a vision that he expressed in an, uh, an essay published in 1919 called Tradition and the Individual Talent, mm-hmm. which is an essay that he finalized after the war was over and he could finally travel back to France. And he undertook a walking tour in the, the south of France where he visited Paleolithic caves. And there's a reference in that essay to the fact that art never changes. And he refers to the Magdalenian draftsman. That is someone who was living 20 or 30,000 years ago, putting these images on the walls of caves. And so he had a very, very broad sense of the capability of all of the arts, broad in the sense that it included everything from the beginning of human artistic enterprise to unconceivable futures. Mm-hmm. And I think he wanted to keep all of that in play. And that was very much the spirit of so many people working in all of the arts at that time, that they were as future oriented as they were past oriented. And this is where the Wasteland and other works of that time, the Rite of Spring, for instance, mm-hmm. seem to be these dramatic epiphanic moments where suddenly there seems to be a before and an after. And in both the case of Stravinsky and Eliot, these were not young Turks who were trying to shake things up. They had arrived at a moment in the expression of their own personalities, their obsessions, their sense of adventure, to kind of take a step in their own art that made people look around and think both this shouldn't be happening and also why hasn't this happened before? Mm. And that's where I think those watershed moments come into play is when someone just has the wherewithal to do something without looking over their shoulder to make sure that, that somebody there's a bunch of people behind who are ready to follow. But that's also what creates this sense that you're asking about is were they thinking about the consequences? And I think in the case of Elliot in the Wasteland, writing the poem, publishing the poem came first, and then it was having to figure out what the consequences would be. Mm. So what was the impact of the 1922 publication? Did poets respond to it immediately? Did the the broader public start to view it as, oh, this is something we had better read if we're going to, to be up on the culture? Or did it take a while for it to find its footing, so to speak? It was instantaneous. Mm. Uh, it really was a shot heard around the world. And one of the reasons why I, I use that expression is not just because it's a standard expression for something that's momentous, but also because it literally traveled around the world very, very quickly. Mm. It was translated into languages by major other artists and scholars, into Italian, 
into French, into German, even into Urdu, into Japanese. It went around the world very quickly. And one of the reasons is that as a work of poetry, in the kind of idiom that, that Eliot wrote it in, it is very easy to translate. It's a lot harder to translate, say, traditionally conceived mm, yeah. rhymed verse. You know, you, you can right. do kind of prosoid translations of things. But the, the Wasteland, nobody who translated the Wasteland really had to fuss much with that, that kind of stuff. And so in one chapter in the book, I go through passages of uh, like the beginning of the poem, beginning April is the cruelest month, and compare translations from French, German, Italian, Spanish. And, and they all come across as being equally effective in their original languages. It's, it's rare to find translations of the wasteland that kind of make a mess of it. So one of the reasons for the success of The Wasteland is it was instantly an international poem and not just an Anglo-American phenomenon. And that is really unique, I think, in the history of modern poetry. There's there's just nothing else I can imagine or compare it to. Another reason for the impact of The Wasteland is the publication date. 1922 was a moment when the war was a recent memory, but it was, you know, starting to kind of fall away and people were beginning to wonder how to pick up the pieces from the, mm. the shambles of this uh, terrible calamity that had been visited on the world for five years. And people were beginning to kind of look ahead and realize that, that what came ahead was not an, an innocent world. It was a world that would be known as post-war. And Eliot gave people in the wasteland what I would characterize as the stink of the post-war. That is, mm. you know, it's a world that's there, you know, you could call it brave with possibilities, like the brave new world of Huxley later on, but you, you'd probably be fooling yourself. There's unexpected things on the horizon, things, there's not like a rosy outlook after the war. There's only relief that there's, the war is over. Mm. And that really affected a younger generation of poets, people who were just beginning to go to college at that time, and those were the fanboys of the wasteland where people, uh, Evelyn Waugh has a scene in his novel Bride's Head Revisited where one of the characters takes a bullhorn and stands out on his balcony in an Oxbridge environment reciting the wasteland as various students are going down to the river to be punting around in their, their yeah. watercraft. Yeah. And uh, it's that kind of aspect and response that one of those young people at the time said about the wasteland that it got into your head like a song hit. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, says a great deal about the reception of the wasteland, and that is, this is a multi-sensory reception. And so readers of the old school poetry who read poems with kind of a half an eye, not really paying that close attention because they didn't have to pay close attention, because in any poem, they were hearing something they'd heard before. And mm -hmm. what they were interested in is, is it being put in a, in a clever way that I haven't heard before? Mm -hmm. But the wasteland is a poem that basically says, wake up and, you know, and pay attention because you can't let anything go. Anything might mean anything at any given point. And how will you know it means something unless you're paying attention with every fiber of your being and unless you're open to experiences that have actually never been registered in poetry before? And the post-war generation was intrigued by that. And of course, the, the people and many people in Eliot's generation just recognized well, yeah, this is this is our life. This is our story. And in fact, a lot of people were already doing it in other arts. Was Freud part of this as well? I'm thinking that the idea that things aren't going to be just handed to you in neat packages and a, a poet can kind of deliver the news, so to speak, in kind of this superficial way. But there's probably something simmering underneath the surface is were people conditioned for the wasteland by starting to come to grips with Freud? Probably uh, some of them, and you know, of course, it, it's consequential in a way. It's certainly appropriate that one of the publishers of the wasteland, the, the, the wasteland, appeared in uh, two different journals on both sides of the Atlantic, and was published by two different publishers on both sides of the Atlantic, all at the end of 1922. And one of them was Virginia Woolf, Virginia yeah. and Leonard Woolf, with the Hogarth Press. And the Hogarth Press then became after, I'm not sure, I, I think it's after the Wasteland. Yeah. The Hogarth Press became the publisher of Freud's works in, in English. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, that's an appropriate congruence in the, in the face of a, a single publisher there. But, you know, Freud had been in the air for a while. But you're pointing to something that I think is really important here, which is the idea of thinking in terms of poetry 
and Freud was just not on the table. Hmm. Freud was much more a talking point when it came to fiction. So mm-hmm. there, there, there was much more of an awareness that in the, the works of Virginia Woolf, for instance, or James Joyce or many other people, that the, the kind of issues that Freud was, was talking about in psychoanalysis were much more evident in the kind of storytelling mode and the introspective psychological storytelling mode, which had been the main adventure of modern fiction since the 1880s or 1890s. And so in a way, the foreground of, say, opening the door to Freud in fiction created just a tiniest little chink of an opening that then could filter out into poetry, beginning with the wasteland. But the psychoanalytic or psychopathic aspect of the wasteland has more to do with Eliot's own personal drama than, than with uh, any kind of theoretical connection. You know, I mentioned that Eliot had made a, a somewhat disastrous marriage in 1915, shortly after he met Pound, and was persuaded to stay in England and not return to Harvard to pursue a, a career in academia. And in part, his not very well-considered marriage was the result of him trying to figure out what to do with the fact that he was still at the age of 28 was a virgin and had a lot of sexual panic and perplexity. And and it just became a kind of a nightmare of mutual recriminations between uh, Elliot and his wife, Vivian. And by the time he was writing the draft material for The Wasteland, they had been enduring this arduous and challenging marriage for uh, half a dozen years. And so the poem, in a way, registers this kind of psychosexual panic and distress combined with the inordinate uh, Harvard learning <laughs> that he yeah. had. And then it also has to do with the what I would call the last gasp of neurasthenia. Mm. Uh, neurasthenia is a term that was invented by an American physician named George Beard in, in 1869. And it quickly took on a kind of a, a glamorous aroma as uh, because Beard presented it as the disease that America deserves because it's a disease of elite circles, and it's something that he called a national malady. And and he and other theorists said that it wasn't even possible for like non-white Anglo-Saxon people of Anglo-Saxon stock to have neurasthenia. It was something that that was the pathological expression of the highest intelligence. Mm. And Eliot regarded himself as a neurasthenic and referred to himself that way, uh, and other people referred to him that way. And it's interesting because the term neurasthenia, even while it circulated for nearly 50 years, was finally deposed or disqualified in the medical profession the year after The Wasteland was published. Hmm. So that's why he was kind of one of the last of the (laughs) neurasthenic. But the perspective on neurasthenia that I adopt and apply in the book comes from a French writer, and then he became a major filmmaker in France, Jean Epstein, who wrote a book that was published shortly before or during the uh, writing of The Wasteland, and that Eliot really lapped up and, and And it reaffirmed his sense of himself as a neurasthenic in a positive sense. And that is, Epstein referred to a neurasthenic aristocracy, by which he meant modern artists in general. Because what he said about neurasthenia is that it's not a question of a malady, but a modification of the organism. And that goes back to the point you raised a a while ago about the impact of modern technologies. And this is exactly what Epstein recognized, is that people experience the world in a different way. The modern world agitated the nerves, and neurasthenia is a a way of referring to the nerves of of excitement, of excitability. This is something that Gertrude Stein also wrote about and lectured about in 1935 on her uh, Great American Tour, that this agitation of the nerves is is the very identifying trait of modern individuals. And it leads to innovations in the arts that are not necessarily intended as innovations. That is, you can be afflicted with nervousness and end up producing something that is absolutely original. And the term that I would use for this is the Kafka F, Mm. because Franz Kafka, the German language Prague native writer, ended up producing an indelible image of the world being unavoidably weird and the weirdness having an impact from top to bottom of various protagonists' personalities and his stories. And Walter Benjamin, one of his essays about Kafka, referred to it as seasickness on dry land. And I think that's a good way of, of summing up the condition that Eliot found himself in when he was writing The Wasteland. Mm. 
Well, as far as being a, a clamorous world with lots of different voices, so to speak, and different levels of rhetoric that are all mashed together and demanding our attention all at once, it seems like things are even more modern today. Would you say that the wasteland, has it been surpassed? Is that still sort of our key text for understanding poetry and how it fits into our lives? Or what ended up happening to it? Did it just get absorbed into subsequent poetry throughout the generations? Or does it still stand as kind of the, the key text to understanding who we are? I think it depends, once again, on where you're situated. Mm. There is the Mexican Nobel laureate uh, Octavio Paz, a great Mexican poet, gave a series of lectures in Harvard in the early 1970s. It was published under the title Children of the Mire. And in that book, he approaches poetry from a very multilingual and cosmopolitan perspective. And at that point, he recognized that the wasteland had been kind of swallowed up and muffled by an Anglo-American literary establishment that was very myopic and inward looking and mm. just had simply failed to recognize the cosmopolitanism and the international impact of the wasteland. And he referred to the wasteland as the first Anglo-American simultanist poem. Now, that adjective, simultanist, refers to a French tendency in poetry in the first decade up to about the advent of the First World War. And the proponents of that are Blaise Sandrard and uh, Guillaume Apollinaire, who I referred to earlier, and then a number of other poets who were working on simultaneity in a different register, which is to say they were writing poems for multi-voice choirs and things like that. But simultaneism is, in effect, the principle of collage transferred to a poetic idiom. So in 1972 or 73, whenever those lectures were, Paz recognized that everybody around the world understood this very clearly and understood that the Wasteland was a central document in this, except Americans and, and Brits. Mm. And, and even though that is now 50 years ago, I think the same statement could be made. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to orient my book in this way, to explain how it is that The Wasteland is not an Anglo-American poem in the end. It's an international poem. And from an international perspective, the strategies and mores and belief systems from a kind of an anthropological perspective that characterize the Anglo-American literary environment continue to be as outdated now as they were a hundred years ago when the, the Wasteland was published, which isn't to say that I would characterize the predominant poetry of today as old-fashioned. In fact, there are no end of figures and poems I could cite that are direct beneficiaries of what the Wasteland pioneered. But in general, it's just still oddly under-recognized. Mm, okay, well, let's leave things there. And hopefully this podcast episode will help do a little more to help uh, people recognize it, as I'm sure that your book will do. Professor Razula, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Jed Rasula for joining me today and to James Joyce for his little cameo, Robert Browning, who kind of took one on the chin for us. I like Browning. The episode on the Brownings, Falling in Love, is one of my favorite episodes in the archive and one of yours, too, based on downloading statistics. And finally, thanks... <laughs> To our special guest appearance from Michigan J. Frog. Let's hope you were able to hear him singing the Michigan Rag. We played it two or three times here, although part of me suspects that you just heard silence. Maybe I alone can hear the frog sing. I can even hear him now, but surely that's just my imagination. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for... Oh! Oh, what's upcoming? Chekhov is next. That's one you're Want to join us for, we have Bob Blaisdell here telling us about a magical year in Chekhov's life when a literary genius emerged and Chekhov became Chekhov. We'll also have Gina Bonaguro here to wax Italian in that particular E.M. Forster room with a view way. And we'll have a special holiday story from an unexpected source. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.